Thank you, Jackson. And man, we serve a good God. And uh, I hope you're ready for what our Heavenly Father has put forward for us this morning as His children. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Uh, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we are in the midst of a series called Dear Church, where we are looking at the seven churches directed to in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are in our third week now, so we're going to be beginning in verse 12 as you make your way to Revelation chapter 2. We've dealt with the church of Ephesus that was theologically sound, doctrinally sound, orthodoxically sound, uh, yet at the same time devotionally shallow. We looked at the church of Smyrna last week that was persecuted in poverty and threatened with prison, yet at the same time Christ came and pronounced truth upon the church despite their worldly circumstances that they were spiritually rich. And this morning we're going to turn our attention to the church of Pergamum. And we're going to begin in verse 12. If you have your scriptures with you, you can read along with me. Begin verse 12, and the word of the Lord says unto the angel. And the word angel, again, if you haven't been here, means messenger, uh, speaking to the leader, elder, pastor of the church. Uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, or Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war, wait, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So we've been walking through these churches here and are about midway point right now. The church of Pergamum has a lot of similarities to the church of Smyrna in the idea that we don't have a whole lot of biblical information about it, unlike the church of Ephesus where there seems to be a plethora of so. The church of Pergamum and Smyrna are only mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 1. But we can maybe jump to a conclusion, though we can't know for sure, that Paul had some part in planting or starting this church, though it's never mentioned in Scripture. We do know as we journey with Paul on his mission trips to the book of Acts, he went through this area all three times on his missionary trips. Uh, the church of Pergamum was placed in a city, the city of Pergamum, which was heavily in idol worship. Uh, it was a place where there was not only emperor worship, uh, which was prevalent through all Roman Empire, but there was also two temples to two Greek gods, and one of the chief Greek gods, being Zeus, had a temple here in Pergamum, which lets us know that the church here and the believers here ministered in a heavily pagan city, which is probably what most of the church was built up of as individuals coming from that sort of background. But we're told by Jesus Christ here in verse, 12, or verse 13 that he knows where you dwell. He knows where this church is. He knows where the believers live. And he says it is a place that is Satan's throne and a place also where Satan dwells. 
Now, I read that, and I don't know if that's bragging rights or if that's something to be ashamed of. Um, if you lived as a believer in Pergamum, you could obviously come to somebody and say, look, you've heard of Sin City. Well, I live in Satan City. That's really what it's saying. I live in the place where Satan dwells. That, that term, Satan's throne, is to say that it is a place where Satan and evil forces have power and authority and jurisdiction. Unlike the church of Smyrna there that we read last week in verse five or verse nine where it talks about a synagogue or assembly of Satan, Pergamum is spoken of as a place where Satan was ruling and he was showing his power and flexing his muscle. In the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this evil, there is a church here that is being loyal and having uh, levels of faithfulness to the Word of God and being a light into the darkness. As we read on, there's a mention of an individual in verse 13 named Antipas, who's called a faithful witness. As we read that and we can go do some historical backing, you're not going to find much information about Antipas. Matter of fact, it's very little. Um, so what we have to gather is that name in this event dealing with Antipas is mentioned for the original readers of this letter. They would have understood when Antipas's name was dropped, I know who that is. They would have understood when the events surrounding this event where Antipas was martyred or killed for his faith. They would have remembered that and remembered how they've gotten through that. And Jesus here is commending them for their faith even in the midst of that persecution. In the days of Antipas, what we find about the church of Pergamum is that they were a faithful church despite being faith tested. As we read through this, the issue in Pergamum is not, matter, it's not their faithfulness and it's not them denying Christ. The issue in Pergamum is that they were compromising Christ. If you look there in verse 14 and 15, Jesus brings his rebuke as he did with Ephesus. I have a few things against you. This is a little different than Ephesus where he pretty much said in verse 4, I have this against you. Here is, I have a few things against you. You hold, uh, you have some there, so not the whole church, just some within the church who are holding to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. If Nicolaitans sounds any what familiar, it should take us back to the church of Ephesus to which Jesus comes to that church and say, I have this with you, I'm, I'm commending you about this and that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans as I hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, my mama always said you never say you hate anything because hate is such a strong word. But Jesus is saying he hates whatever these Nicolaitans stand for. Again, we can't gather a whole lot of information about who the Nicolaitans were, what they preached, or what they uh, presented. But the word itself, Nicolaitans, mean a group of individuals who subdued or ruled over the people. And the word hate, which Jesus gives in, in, to the church of Ephesus, is a word in the Greek that means Jesus cannot stand everything or anything that this group of people stand for, preach, or present. So whereas the church of Ephesus is, is strong in doctrine and theology and we're, and we're hating the Nicolaitans because of their subduing and ruling over the people that were not biblical, here we have the church of Pergamum who seems to be compromising themselves and allowing the teachings of the Nicolaitans to come in, whatever that was. 
What we can gather is Scripture now combines the Nicolaitans here in verse 15 to this event in verse 14 dealing with Balaam and Balak, or Balaam and Balak. I've been messing with the pronunciations of those all week, trying to get them right, so just grace, please. If you, if you have your Scriptures, you can go back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, and I just want to encourage you to go read this story because it is a fascinating story that happens in the book of Numbers, beginning in chapter 22, it runs through 24 and, and carries on into chapter 25. But, so the story itself has this individual named Balak who is the king of the Moabites. Now, at this point in time in Scripture, the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they're on their way to the Promised Land. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, sees this massive camp of people. And he's also just caught word that they have conquered over the Amorites who are also living in the land. So he has this fear or this threat in his heart that something has to be done about this group of people. So he goes and summons the individual known as Balaam. Now, we don't know much about this individual. He appears to come across as a prophet um, in that Balak goes to him to ask him to speak to the Lord so that they can bring a curse upon the people of Israel. But he's never given that title as prophet. If anything, he seems like a prophet for hire because Balak goes to him and offers him gold and silver in order to bring this curse. Well, Balaam says, all right, but I cannot say anything that God will not allow me to say, but I will go and seek the Lord on, the, on your behalf and see what the Lord has to say. Well, there's this talking donkey incident and because Balaam didn't want to go to Balak, and, but he ends up going, you can read it. Eventually what happens, and I Wi-Fi comical, is Balak is offering a sum of money for Balaam to give this curse. But every time Balaam goes to the Lord seeking what he should say over the people of Israel, the Lord says, to give him a blessing. And so three times he gives him a blessing. And every single time, Balak is like, wait, 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 no, 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 that's not what I'm paying you for. So the first time it happens, he said, well, let me take you over here because you only saw a part of Israel. You only saw like a part of their camp. You need to see how numerous they are. So he takes to another spot, hoping that will change the word of the Lord, but it doesn't. Balaam gives another blessing, but like, no, 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 that's not what you're supposed to do. Let's go to this other place and try it a third time. And so he does it a third time and, and Balak is just, he's, he's, just aggravated. He's mad. He said, I've told you to do this three times. Every single time you've given a blessing, not a curse. And then Numbers chapter 24 ends where the two individuals part ways, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense concerning Pergamum here. But when you go into Numbers chapter 25, there is some sort of connection as in Numbers chapter 25, we find the Moabite women are now intermarrying and intermingling with the Israelite men. The connection is Balak is the king of the Moabites. But when you read scripture, it just goes, they parted ways and then there's this next incident, which 24,000 of the Israelites end up dying by plague. And then there's this whole spear incident. It's a great, you know, nighttime story for your children. Uh, you can read it later in Numbers 25. But there's this lack of connection. How does this event where Balaam pronounces blessings upon God's people, Balak, who wants to curse God's people, how is that connected to what Pergamum is doing? And if you read those, there doesn't seem a connection unless you read a little bit further into Numbers chapter 31. Where in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, it says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, which is the event of Numbers 25, 
And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord in which 24,000 Israelites died. And so when we tie these together, there is some incident that happens between 24 of Numbers and 25 of Numbers in which Balaam, the hired prophet, says, know about cursing the people of Israel because that's what the Lord told him. And he said, I can't do anything the Lord doesn't tell me to do. But in contrast to that, it seems like he wanted to remain on Balak's, or I'm just going to mess up those names, just Balak's good side. So he goes to him at some point in time between 24 and 25 and says, look, if you really want to get to Israel, if you really want to cause destruction on Israel, then this is what you do. You allow your women, the Moabite women, to marry their men, the Israelite men. And when they intermarry and they're intermingled, they will begin practicing your practices, which is against the Lord's will, and it will begin to corrupt the nation. That's exactly what happens. So the issue here in Pergamon, when we take those stories and we put them all together, is this. Balaam knew the word of God. He knew what God wanted to do, but he decided to act against the word of God. So he understood what God was saying. He understood what God was leading him to do. He understood what God was even wanting him to say. But even in all that knowledge of understanding, he made a personal decision that I am going to act against or opposed to what God wants. Know what God wants, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to find a workaround. I'm going to make things happen the way I want. So Balaam would preach the word of God but in, in the end, he would not practice the Word of God. And this is the issue when we come back to Pergamum here in Revelation chapter 2 that are holding to the teaching of Balaam. That there were those in the church that were within the body of Christ who knew God's Word, who knew God's commands. They understood the Word of God, but they were living in opposition to the Word of God, which is causing a stumbling block for anyone wanting to hear the message of God and the message of the gospel. So they were talking the talk, but they weren't walking the walk. That was the issue. And the Bible tells us even further that they were practicing food sacrifice to idols and they were engaging in sexual immorality. In other words, the church in Pergamum was called by God out of this world, so they would in turn call out to the world. That's what the church is. It's not a building. It's a it's a gathering of God's people called out of this world, so we in fact call out to the world. But instead, this people, this group, and not all of them, just some within the church, have been called out of the world, but were still living for and like the world, causing their testimony of the gospel to become corrupted, and then ultimately were endangering the mission of the church to which God had planted in this very dark city. So the apostle Paul gives warning to the church in Corinth about this similar action. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow cause a stumbling block to the weak. The right to which Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is the association of believers with non-believers who are eating food that have been offered up to idol worship. It was the freedom that they had that they could associate with people of the world. And they, we are called to. We're called to go and make disciples. The problem is, in our understanding of associating with believers, we're not to associate with non-believers' practices. And that when we 
accept the gospel of salvation, we have to live a life in order that we can still share the gospel of salvation instead of causing a stumbling block so people cannot come to the gospel of salvation. When it comes to the church of Pergamum, Pergamum, what Jesus is saying is this. You are either representing me or you're repelling me. And that's the call of the church. We can put church on the name, Christ in the name, Baptist in the name. You can put whatever name you want on the building. But the reality is we are either representing Christ or we are repelling people from Christ. Paul had to deal with this issue once again in his second letter to the Corinth church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, the Bible says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. The understanding is not just the sanctity and purity of the church, which Christ is heavily interested here in Pergamum, but it's the sanctity and purity of the believers who therefore make up the church. That in the eyes of unbelievers, we are to be living a life that is separated from the world. That is the word sanctified, that God wants to set us apart as aliens, strangers, sojourners, people who don't belong here. All for the sake that God can receive glory and people can hear the gospel message coming out of our lives. The church of Pergamum here was becoming corrupted. The church of Galatia dealt with the same issue. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, the Bible says, You were called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, Paul is referring back to this freedom we have in Christ, that we are still in this world, but not of the world. But this freedom we have in Christ isn't so that we can live like the world. Or in other words, it isn't, I am free in Christ, I'm saved by grace, I've been given grace, so I can therefore live however I want. I can live in sin. What the Bible points out here is our freedom in Christ isn't that we can sin more, but that we can serve more. So I am free in Christ and I sing of God's love and how it flow over me and Jesus Christ came out of that grave and death was arrested. That is my motivation upon my heart that I now love God with my heart, soul, mind, strength and I love people that God has placed in my life. It's not so, okay, I'm free, no longer under the wrath of God so I can live however I want. Jesus obviously is not commending this church for acting like Satan. And he doesn't commend his believers or his children or his church for acting like the world. He has called us out of the world. The church of Pergamon here in Revelation chapter 2 is compromising the message, ministry, and mission of Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes to the church to remind them that they cannot compromise the gospel, but they must have a conviction for the gospel. And this is the emphasis that if they do not deal with the issues within the church, that Jesus himself is going to come and he's going to bring the sword. That reference to the sword we find in verse 12 and we find again at the end of verse 16 would take us back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 in which the Apostle John is given the full glory of Jesus Christ and it says that the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword It's to let us know that Jesus Christ is the sword. He is the word of God. He is the living word. The writer of Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that we take on the armor of God to take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So putting this all together to understand this church here in Pergamum is that the church knew And they understood the Word of God. 
But the church was allowing the things of the world to infiltrate the church, and therefore the church was becoming compromised. There were some in the church who were not living by the Word of God nor allowing the Word of God to guide them. And so Jesus comes with this promise that if the church of Pergamum and the people who stand for God and represent the church will not stand for the truth, that they are going to be disciplined and be held accountable by the truth. It's a pretty big threat when the king of kings comes to your door and says that. But this is what the church is. We are the body of Christ. We are the physical representation of Jesus Christ to a world that is surrounded by Satan. And so they look to the church for hope. They look for the church for the message of hope and the message of the gospel and forgiveness and the message of, of meaning to life. But when we compromise the word of God, we don't lead people to Christ we put a stumbling block so they never find him. So Jesus comes to them and he calls them to take appropriate action. The church of Pergamon was allowing this group that held to these teachings in verse 14 and the practices of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Basically, they were allowing unbiblical teaching and practices within the body. One thing we have to understand is unbiblical teaching and practices come into the church because of unbiblical individuals who bring them into the church. Typically, it comes in a statement like this, and you can shake it off if you want, but if you've ever said this, said this statement, well, it's just not that big of a deal. That's what the church of Pergamon was doing. And this is what Jesus Christ is reprimanding them for. They had made outside forces, ideologies, not that big of a deal. And what Jesus Christ re reveals here and the Word of God reveals here is that unbiblical teaching and practices are a very big deal to God our Father. And Jesus threatens to bring the sword. He's calling this church to church accountability and church discipline. Again, notice the language. Some of you. It's not the whole church, but there's some within the church that Jesus is calling the believers into accountability and discipline. And I think when we hear that church accountability and church discipline, some of us shudder at that. But I also believe this is why some churches have gotten into so many messes. It's because we're not going to the Word of God and allowing that to be our guiding rod and allowing that to guide us into truth and we're allowing some things just to go because here's the thing, we don't want to step on anybody's toes. We don't want to come across as self-righteous. You know, we all have got problems. And so, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. We'll just let this one slide. So we sweep things under the rug and we sweep, sweep things under the rug more and more and more. So eventually the rug is overflowing and it spews out into the church and churches break and split and get into nasty fights and the world sees it and the world says, that's why I don't go to church. So Jesus says this Pergamon church needs to take action and they need to do it very swiftly. And if they don't do it, he's going to come and do it for them. Luckily for us, the Bible gives us instructions when it comes to accountability and church discipline. Jesus and God, doesn't, they, he, they don't want us to try to figure this thing out and try to make up our own set of plans. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 gives a very thorough plan on how to handle church discipline. When we see an individual who calls themselves a believer, a Christian, and associated with the church, but they're doing unchristian-like things, unbiblical things, we as an individual are to go to that person in love because they're our brother or sister in Christ, and we are to confront them in a loving way. We're to call them out about that. 
hey, I saw you do this. I'm really worried on the direction that's going to take you or your family and the harm that's going to cause. I mean, if we saw one of our family members struggling with something or heading towards danger, I doubt many of us or any of us would remain quiet. I don't do that with my kids. So as a brother and sister in Christ, when I see another brother and sister in Christ struggling with sin and struggling with the temptations, I'm to go to them and say, hey, what's going on? That's more than just saying, hey, I'll pray for you. That is giving a personal attention to the matter. And when that situation is, is dealt with and, it, and it's done in a loving way, but it, it doesn't change anything. Jesus then tells us in Matthew chapter 18, I'm to take another brother or sister and I'm to go to that individual with two of us in agreement that this course of action is not Christ-like and it needs to change and we're to confront that individual again in a loving way to bring them back to God, back into the fold. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, here's what you do. You take that individual before the church. You bring them before the believers who are to hold other believers accountable to the word of God. And again, if the course of action does not change, then the church, this is Jesus's instructions. The church is then to direct their attention to that individual, not as a believer, but as an unbeliever. Which means in the full scope of the church, that individual, if they're not acting like God, not living according to the word of God, not, not allowing the instruction and discipline to come in their life and they're living opposed to the word of God, that individual cannot be in a teaching role or a leading role or any sort of role within the church because the church is made up of believers. It's made up of individuals who've made a personal confession of Christ. This is not a birthright. Membership's not a birthright. You're not born into church membership. You're not born into salvation. It's a personal decision that I have accepted Jesus Christ and now a body of Christ and a part of the body and part of the members working for the work of God to glorify God. And when part, one of those parts is, is off, it's got to be fixed and dealt with. But if that part doesn't want to be fixed, then I have to now treat that individual as someone who doesn't actually know Christ. This is Jesus' instructions. And I'm amazed how many churches shy away from that. But this is why so many churches have issues. Because we just allow things to go. And this is what Jesus comes to this church in Pergamum and says, look, you discipline them or I'll discipline them. You've got my word. You've got the sword. So you know what you're supposed to do. With this in mind, when it comes to disciplining, Church discipline is not to be implemented on unbelievers. I, you, we cannot keep people who have not confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to the standard of God's Word. They've yet to accept Him as Lord and Savior. They have no grounds that they have to. Matter of fact, Paul tells us what have I to do with judging outsiders is not the it's not those inside the church whom you are to judge saying that we are to judge keep accountable those who are in the church who are associated with the body let God judge those outside but as for you he says to the church in Corinth purge the evil person from among you so Jesus is calling this church to hold to a level of accountability upon those who are calling themselves believers that if they're going to say they're believers, they're going to say them Christians, then hey, out of love, treat them like such. Hold them to the level of accountability that God is calling us to. Because if not, it compromises the message. 
ultimately the church is going to be accountable for how we present and how we uphold God's truth and God's word. And this calls us as individuals to accountability. Not everything you hear from a preacher's mouth, not everything you hear connected to a church or a Christian conference is God's word. And so if we hear something, like, I don't know if that's right. Then go to the word of God, test it, filter it out. Otherwise, we start buying into thoughts and ideologies that aren't biblical, but are worldly. And if you don't believe this can happen, my own time in the ministry, I was, I was a youth and worship pastor at this time. And when I was at a business meeting of a church that had been sweeping things under a rug and it exploded. And we were at a business meeting that was one of the most friendly business meetings I've ever been a part of, in which it ended with one man telling another man, if he showed up here again, I'll shoot you. Praise Jesus. Um, but in the midst of that business meeting, the head deacon stands up and says that a church without democracy is not a church. Now that sounds good because we live in a, a, a nation of democracy. We like democracy. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a vote. But here's the thing. Who's in charge of the church? God. And I guarantee you God's not taking his authority up for vote. But we can take things that we've brought in and we've read and we've heard and, well, they're a preacher, so it must be biblical. Or that's, I bought that book in a Christian store or in a Christian section or I checked it out of the Christian area of the library and I read it, so it must be biblical. But the reality is there's a lot of fluff out there that has nothing to do with the Word of God. And God comes to the church of Pergamum and says this, you're going to be held accountable for what you are allowing into the church. And if you're not going to discipline it and take care of it, you better believe I will because my name is on the line. That's the message he brings to the church. He says, I will come and I will come soon in verse 16 and I will war against them. War against them with the sword of my mouth. Lately, I've been reading a biography in, on Martin Luther which I've been thoroughly enjoying, which is a huge change of pace in reading I like to do or, or typically do. Um, but my, my brother and my dad, who, who kind of bring discipline on me and, and kind of give me some instruction, really encouraged me to start reading some more biographies and history and things like that. And so I started reading this book upon Martin Luther, not King Jr., but Martin Luther associated with the Reformation. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, Martin Luther himself, um, very interesting individual. Um, and there are several things that led to the direction he ended up going it, it, it began to be infused by the selling of indulgences. Um, he saw this act where the Roman Catholic Church was allowing people to buy forgiveness. And so they would pay a certain amount that was given by a preacher and they would be forgiven for their sins. And, and there's a funny story in this book where a man asks uh, one of these indulgent preachers, you know, does, if I pay for a sin that I may commit in the future, is that still going to be forgivable? And he says, oh, yeah, 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 you just you got to pay the sum. And so he paid the sum, and then the guy went and killed the preacher, but he said I was forgiven. So, um, ha-ha. Uh, anyway, so Martin Luther got pretty upset because he was, 
One, the indulgences, because the people he was ministering to were in a very poor society, but two, the indulgences, he could not find the backing to Scripture. But it also started causing waves because the Roman Catholic Church used this money, which people were paying for forgiveness for sins, and not only for their sins, but their loved ones' sins, and even loved ones who had died. They were in a place called purgatory, um, that they could get them out, and if they paid so much, and, and Martin Luther, where, he couldn't find that in Scripture, so he started calling it out. And they started calling other things out. Because they started saying, well, you know, the Pope said this and the Pope said that. And Martin Luther said, yeah, but what does God say? What does the Word of God say? And he's, they wanted him to recant. And he said, I will recant if you can show me where I am wrong according to the Word of God. But if you can't show me according to the Word of God, then I can't recant. And the church itself put a bounty on it and said, the church. The church put a bounty on the head of a preacher. Man, we just don't have those sort of headlines today, do we? But Martin Luther was so convicted that the Word of God was the pure authority of the church and of God's people that his conviction, which put a, a, a price on his head and made him live in hiding at some periods of his life, led to the way we read the Bible now, led to the way we worship now, led to you being able to have a Bible in your lap right now and be able to read it in a language that you can understand it. Led to the way we understand salvation and justification and forgiveness and eternal life. All this came about similar to what was happening here in Pergamum. The Martin Luther was in the Word of God. He saw what the Word of God was saying and he saw the church was practicing things that he could not align with the Word of God. His understanding was if it's not in the Word of God and it's not aligned to the Word of God, it doesn't need to be in the midst of God's people. This is our measuring rod right here. Fortunately, churches have gotten into the measuring rod of how big your budget is, how big your attendance is. Jason said we don't do attendance through cards. We do care about attendance, but attendance doesn't matter. I mean, to God, He's looking at our hearts right now. And so we can get into different things. You know, preachers, one conversation preachers tend to have, and Dr. H, you can probably agree. So what are you running these days? Does that really matter? We had under 50 kids at VBS this last week. We had one girl whose eternal destiny is forever changed. That's a success. We're going to celebrate six baptisms next Sunday. That's a success. That's how we measure success. Are we changing lives for the kingdom? That's what Jesus is looking at. That's what we're going to be held accountable for. We're bringing glory to our Lord and Savior. So Jesus says, those who conquer the universe 17, I'm going to give some hidden manna, which is most likely referring to the manna that was hidden to the Ark of the Covenant, um, that was in the Holy of Holies. But it's also a reminder to these individuals hearing this word of the manna to which God provided as they went through the wilderness, as they went through suffering and went through persecution, went through hard times where the enemies were all around them, that God faithfully and continuously provided to get them through to the promised land as we are heading to our promised kingdom. God says, those who conquer, I'm going to give some of my hidden manna. I mean, I bet that's the good stuff right there. I'm going to give them a white stone. The white stone in the Greek 
world had many different ideas, but most significant was one of approval and acceptance. I'm going to give them a stone of approval, of acceptance. It's a, it's, it was a stone used that you would show up kind of like your invitation card that you'd be able to get into the banquet. Jesus says, those who conquer, those who hold true to my word and represent my word, you're going to get the hidden man and you're going to get a stone that's going to say, when you get to my kingdom, welcome home. Welcome to this banquet I've been preparing for you and your house is three doors down on the left. It's the big one off the gold street. He says it's going to have a new name written on that stone. It speaks of our new identity and our new relation to God. It's not an identity to this world. It's, it's an identity with God and our relationship through Jesus Christ. So what does it come down to us as a church we fast or rewind back to the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord's instructions to Joshua and Israel as they were going out into a world surrounded by individuals who were not serving and worshiping God. This is what God says to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so you will be, may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous then you will have good success. We want to be a good church, a prosperous church, a successful church. We have to keep to this no matter what. No matter what. But as this individual is the question that came to me this week as I'm reading about Pergamum because the church is made up of individual believers. We form the body. So the question individually to me is, is there anything unbiblical or anything worldly that I'm allowing into my heart and my mind that does not match the Word of God? Is there anything I'm allowing to draw, drive my convictions that isn't the Word of God? It may sound good, look good, smell good, but if it isn't the Word of God, it's not truth. Final question this morning is, do you know who the Bible says you are? You know, we live in a world where you have to be politically correct. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But God knows in order for us to come to truth, we have to understand truth. And the Bible is very clear that everyone in this room is a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us. Everyone we encounter is a sinner. That's, that's our spiritual problem, is sin. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages or the cost of that sin is death. That death is eternal separation from the God of the living. So we all have sin, and the cause of that sin is death. So how do we take care of that problem? Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we talked about this week at, at VBS. Men every night just give gospel presentation. But a gift, I don't, I don't receive a gift. I don't give a gift. I don't give a gift expecting you to pay me. I'm going to go to Dave and say, hey, here's a gift, 20 bucks. That's not a gift. That's a product. The <laughs> Bible says that the eternal life is a gift, meaning God is freely giving it. We don't have to work for it, earn it. We don't have to have a, a banner saying we deserve it. It's a gift of God because of mercy and grace because there's nothing we could do to actually re to, to earn this thing. It's eternal life. And the reason God gives this gift to every single one of us because we're sinners, but God loves you. 
Bible says he loves the world. That's everyone who makes up this planet. He loves them. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be given eternal life. This is why we stick to the truth. There are not several roads to heaven. There's one, and Jesus said it very clearly. I am the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can be good enough, you can be a church member and still go to hell. You're putting your faith in the wrong thing. Jesus comes, and he comes for us this morning and says, you know, are you actually saved? Do you believe God loves you? Do you understand you're a sinner? Do you believe in your heart that God sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins on a cross? They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later. later. That's, that death was arrested. Do you believe that? The Bible says, when I believe that in my heart and I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. No ifs and buts are about it. I will be saved. And from that moment on, what we are called to, for those who have already done that, is now we are to live separated from this world. In it, but not of it. And we use this as our measuring rod. I don't know where you are this morning, but maybe you're here and you know you've been allowing some things in your life, maybe your family has been causing some corruption, and Jesus has brought the sword of truth at you. It gets into our innermost parts, the bone marrow. And you realize, man, there's some things I just need to get out. Maybe here this morning, and you know, I've yet to accept Jesus Christ. You may have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, but you know, you were just going through motion. It wasn't something personal to you, and that needs to change. I'm going to be standing down here at time invitation. We ask Jackson to come on down. However, God has spoken to your heart. Now is the time to respond. Jesus was calling this church to action as he's calling us today. How are we going to respond to the word of God? The Bible says that we are wise builders when we not only hear the word of God, but do the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you give us your word to discipline us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us for godliness for righteousness. So we may be thoroughly equipped as individuals and as a church for the good works you've prepared for us. I thank you for what you're doing here at Harvest Hill. I thank you for allowing us to be a part of it, allowing us to see your glory be revealed in these kids' lives to be changed and adults' and students' lives to be changed. Father, continue to give us the desire to pant for you and your presence and your word and your voice. Thank you for this incredible gift. Forgive us those times where we have turned to other things and allowed other things to rule us or guide us or give us direction when your word has everything we need for godliness and life. So Father, we come this moment of response. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters of Christ, Lord, that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do and reveal the things you revealed in my life that just need to be flushed out. Lord, that I would be an, a vessel, an instrument of righteousness to bring you glory, and that we as a church would be that. So we come this time to just repent as you call the church of Pergamum to do so. Lord, I also pray for the individuals here who are not your children, who are living in the midst of Satan's throne, in a place where Satan dwells. Satan has full rule and jurisdiction over their life. Father, knowing that you love them and your will is that they would be saved and come to that understanding. In this moment, your spirit would just awaken them and open their eyes to see. 
praise you for the great mighty things you're doing right now and the great mighty things you'll continue to do through this day. You are a good Father. Thank you, Lord. Let us bring you worship in spirit and truth in this time as we respond. Praise all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing.